Welcome back, everyone. We are so excited to welcome you back to another episode of Into the Wee Hours podcast, this one being our second interview. Uh, Firstly, thank you to everyone who has taken the time to give us feedback about the podcast. It's been really fun for Sarah and myself to be able to do this and to be releasing these episodes. It's been awesome. So if you do have time um, and you feel so inclined, if you can hop on to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and just leave a rating or even give us a bit of feedback as well, that would mean a lot to us. So today's episode is with a good friend of mine, Matt Wilkins. I know Matt through riding bikes and drinking coffee. Matt is a professional mountain bike coach, and he's also an extremely experienced adventurer. It was a real honor to give him a platform to talk about some of his amazing expeditions, and also importantly, the reality of balancing life as an everyday adventurer. We also get to chat to Matt about his early days as a kid and how they shaped him into how he thinks of adventuring today. Solo versus shared adventures, the learnings that come from our inverted quotations failed adventures, and some of the crazy and entertaining missions that he has been on. Matt was a really awesome guest. He was super fun to talk to. We had a lot of laughs, and we are really excited to be able to just elevate his voice and his stories. So, without further ado, cue Kristen and her awesome intro. Into the wee hours podcast featuring Sarah and Kristen. I'm a roll up my sleeping bag. Is it clear skies? I'm wishing. Sipping on noon and wine. I'm just feeling so fine. It's after 5 p.m., babe. I'm about to have a good time. Run, bike, hike. Welcome to episode four of the Into the We Hours podcast. My name is Sarah Pendergrass, and I am joined as ever by my wonderful co-host, Kristen Borton. Hello. Um, today we have one of my favorite humans as a guest. His name is Matt Wilkins. Or maybe that should be Matthew if we're being formal, I don't know. He is owner and head coach at Mountain Bike Coaching Australia, based here on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Matt has a pretty awesome adventure resume, and we are super excited to speak to him today. So to begin, Matt, yep. we're going to launch into some quick fire questions. All right, hit me. Now, we haven't done these very well as quick fire. We've been like mm-hmm. giving really long answers. <laughs> so today we're going to try and just ask you to limit your answers to one or two qu- words, not questions. Words. Okay. Okay. And this will be good for me because... This is literally the first time that we have sat across the table from each other by yeah. any means. <laughs> so I have been excited to interview you. Sarah's talk, told me a lot of really good things. So, all right, let's kick it off. Let's go. The weirdest place you've slept on an overnight adventure. I'm going to say it right now because Sarah's <laughs> been hassling me about this, but a Serbian hotel that was very much like a brothel. Very much like a brothel, or was a brothel. <laughs> I can't. I can't confirm it was a brothel. I did ask if I could sleep in the same room as my bike, and uh, <laughs> and yeah, uh, I don't know. There were lots of glamorous women there. Um, I only slept there for about three hours, so yeah, it all sort of adds up. There was a red light out the front of it, but um, I and don't you, know. You were allowed to leave at three a.m. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That could be it. (laughs) Next one. Weirdest thing you have eaten on an adventure? Um, Man, that's 
I don't know. I don't know what the weirdest thing would be. How about your tendency? Oh, actually, to... I yeah, I do eat other people's unfinished food. <laughs> so it could be anything like an unfinished pizza, um, half a cup of coffee that's left over because it was still warm. Um, I was going to ask if it was cold or not. Would you like dive into a cold cup of coffee? Uh, do you have standards? No. <laughs> On a trip, like you just got to embrace it in a dirt bag, don't you? So. <laughs> Calories are yeah. calories yeah, that's when right. you're out there, right? Yeah. So pillaging someone else's food, be the, yeah. The weirdest thing you've eaten. Yeah. Good one. Uh, most memorable campsite? Uh, Winter Cove, Deal Island, uh, in the middle of the Bass Strait. Absolutely epic spot. Just uh, pristine, no one there. It's just amazing. Yeah. We'll come back to how you got there. That's pretty cool. If you could go on a multi-day adventure with anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be? My wife. <laughs> that's like one of the best trips I've ever done was kayaking the Wit Sundays with Beck. So, oh, that's um, awesome. yeah, it's still one of the highlights, you know. Um, and who is Beck for anybody who doesn't know? Uh, Beck is my wife. We've been together for, we've been married for um, 21 years. Congratulations. So, yeah, long that's time. Awesome. Yeah, life adventure partner. So, love that. Cool. Are you reading anything currently? I am. Uh, a book that Sarah actually lent me uh, called The Brave Athlete. Oh, Calm the fuck oh, down. and I love that what is book. It? And rise to the occasion. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Where are you up to? This is going to uh, be a tangent. I, f- I love that yeah, book. Yeah, it's such a good book. Hey, um, I'm just past the habit forming yeah, cool. part of it. So, it's yeah, it's so well written. Um, and it's actually, it actually made me think a lot about the way I think and frame things. Um and even some of the things that you like, he always like flogs memes and stuff like that on Instagram. And a lot of those memes that I sort of buy into a little bit. So it's been a little bit confronting in that respect. Yeah. Um, but such such a well-written book, I reckon. They yep. do a really good job doing that as an audio book as well. Oh, do they? Because yep. they both read it out loud. Oh, they are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good I'm book. I'm so glad you're reading yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I read it years ago, and, and I'm told I need to read it again. You do Matt. need to read it again. <laughs> All right, next one. So we always say that every item on your bike on an adventure needs two uses. Please give me an example of a two-use object, Matt. I reckon one of the best ones you have on a bike trip is your tube. The humble tube, you know, it's going to get you out of trouble. It'll you use it to fix a, a busted um, tyre. But... You can use it as a sling. You can um, tie things up with it. If you're chafing, you can even bust it open. There's powder on the inside of a tube. <laughs> wow, there's three uses there. <laughs> I thought the humble tube was just for fixing tires. Oh, man, it's no. Get out in the bush with a tube. And <laughs> so you is there know. a story behind that? Is no, there, no, there no. isn't. Oh, okay. No, I just, just thought about it. Oh, yeah, you could bust it open and use it. But, True. yeah, multiple uses with that. So yeah, I've used one as a sling. Yeah, right. um, we've used tubes together to actually tie or pull someone out, you know, when they couldn't ride. So, yeah, yeah, it's a pretty versatile bit of kit. Nice. There you go. Yeah. And what is your guilty pleasure? This could be anything. Goggle box. What? Is, oh, oh really? <laughs> it's almost as I bad, will, though, yeah. as Sarah's. Like That's worse than cheer. I don't. I don't know. I There's don't know. There's nothing wrong with cheerleading films <laughs> or whatever. I yeah. 
Gogglebox so, is bad, but what, it's so good. And Gogglebox is actually, I, I've never watched it before, so outside of perspective looking in, it's literally just people watching TV, right? Yeah, yeah, it's you watching people watching TV. But the cool thing that I like out of it is the stuff that I say is basically the same stuff that they say, that everyone, every one of them says, based, you know, essentially the same thing. It's pretty amazing, no matter what background they're from. Yeah, it's just just stupid TV, but it's fun. So you're just making it a bit <laughs> philosophical to... <laughs> yeah, that's right. And back this is the up. higher purpose for Gogglebox, yeah. <laughs> you actually had me convinced there as well. <laughs> it is sort of cool from that respect, though. But... Love it. All right, well, that's the end of the quickfire questions. Right. <laughs> Again, Done. I like that they're not that quickfire, but you did a good job. <laughs> um, it was one or two paragraphs, wasn't it? Yeah. Only one or two words. <laughs> So I guess to kick us off a little mm-hmm. bit more formally as well, Sarah and you definitely know each other much, much more than obviously I know you. Um, kind of same thing for Crystal. I had a little bit more of an in-depth perspective on her. So like for me, just give me like kind of a full rundown of your origin story. Like who are you? Where are you from? What got you here? As much or as little as you'd like to kind of go off on that. Yeah, cool. Um, well, I grew up on the south side of Brisbane on a um, like a fairly big property, I guess, you know, 10 acres. It was my granddad's retirement plan. He was a builder in Stanthorpe, and uh, his retirement plan was to have a rose farm. I'm not sure why. Sounds like the worst retirement plan you could have. But, <laughs> but, but for us, it was like the perfect place to grow up. We had 10 acres. It was farmed. Uh, my sister and I used to run around and build cubby houses and, you know, go nuts, climb trees. It was awesome. So... That's where I grew up, and um, yeah, I grew up, I guess, mucking around riding bikes out in the backyard, and Dad uh, decided that maybe I'd like to ride BMX. So I did that, and that turned into like 10 years of racing BMX, and we travelled around as a family, um, you know, explored Queensland, went out to Alice Springs to race Aussie titles. That was basically our yearly holiday, a family holiday. And um, yeah, I was exposed to a little bit of coaching there, I guess, you know, to to become a better rider, uh, developed a bit of racecraft and all that sort of thing there. There were kids, it was sort of crazy when I look back at it, you know, you're an eight-year-old kid and you're up on the starting gate and everyone's picking little balls out of a out of a bucket and that would get you place on the starting gate. And there'd be kids there that um, would basically look at everyone lining up and go, I'm going to beat you, I'm going to push you off, I'm going to do this to you, I'm going to cut you out in the first corner. So, you know, from a, from a little kid that was pretty daunting to get muscled out by these these older kids. But BMX was cool, loved it, sort of had a massively addictive uh, personality, I guess, in terms of that's all I did. I just rode my bike, tried to jump, tried to do wheelies, tried to do manuals, whatever. That was my thing for a long time. Um, and we did that as a family. So my dad sort of got sick of watching those races. He raced. My sister ended up racing, which is really cool. My mum didn't race. She just stood on the sidelines and worried. And my mum's a classic warrior like a massive warrior. I I can almost remember her being having, you know, dark hair to grey hair within a year of us racing. Oh <laughs> Poor old oh, mum here. Like any good mum would be. <laughs> but uh, my, my parents were awesome. They drove us around and, you know, I it was before internet. It was before, um, uh, so club races, you'd go to a club race. It was every Friday night. And I remember turning up, like, it'd be pouring rain and I'd be hassling mum and dad to take me, just take me up. I reckon they're going to race, it'll clear up, it'll race. And it was before Facebook would say, we, you know, the race is off. 
So I'd be sitting there well past seven o'clock or whatever time race was and dad's going, yeah, it's not going to be on, is it? Like, you never know, they just could be late and stuck in the storm. But I was like super dedicated to it. Um, so that was sort of BMX. And then there's sort of been people that have come along when I look back in my life uh, that have sort of changed that trajectory a little bit. And one was my grade five teacher, Mrs. Pulford, I still remember her. Uh, she brought basketball to our school. So we never had basketball as a sport before. Um, and I started playing that, that addictive personality again, got right into it. That was my everything and ended up playing representative basketball. And that was my first real introduction to like structured training. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was never the greatest basketballer. Um, I was always small, but that not an excuse to not be good. Yeah. How tall are you? Five, eight. So yeah. I was, when, ne- I was never tall. Yeah, what position did you play for basketball? Like point guard. Yeah, point yeah, guard. Yeah, yep. Yeah, and I loved, I loved that too. And I loved the training. And uh, I remember going to these training sessions and making a representative team, which again I didn't really want to do. Mum said, "Come on, let's just go. Once you get there, see if you want to try out. Try it out." And Mum was really good like that. A lot of times I didn't want to go to training, and they never forced me to, t- you know, to go and do it. But they always said, "Let's just go." see how you feel once you get there. And of course, once you're there, you're fine. So uh, I learned a lot about grit and resilience, uh, trained super hard, like was probably the fittest kid on there. But when I look back, my mind game was atrocious. So I train hard, I do all the, the hard work, but when it came to shooting or taking control, you know, like that, I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't want to take the shot for fear of failure, like a massively fixed mindset, mm. um, which was really, really interesting. But I was a defensive that was my thing, playing defense. You know, I was put my body on the line. I'd just get charged. I'd, you know, run hard, wouldn't give up. So, yeah, it was that was really cool. Taught me a lot about no matter how hard you train, sometimes you're never going to be the best. And I remember my mum getting so upset that I'd put in all this work and wouldn't be on the starting five. And the coach is just going, well, he's not starting five material. But... Yeah. Which is interesting, too, because nowadays, you know, kids are like, everybody's a winner. Like, yeah. there's a bit of that mindset change so to kind of, like, understand that at a bit of a young age. I don't, yeah. You know, there's the pros and cons of it, definitely, but it sounds like you've taken a bit from that even yeah, yeah. when you were a kid. It's just yeah. like, yeah, just put in the hard work, and sometimes, yeah, you can't be the best. So, uh, but that was really cool. And I remember one time I went to, a, like, a state selection camp, and uh, this was, like, another sort of big moment for me, and... um uh, one of the coaches there was like, look, you're too young to make the team, but the way you train and how hard you play, I'm going to see you at the Australian Institute of Sport one day. And he gave me this pin. And I was like, oh, man, this is sick. I never made it to the Australian Institute of Sport. But, um, <laughs> but at that moment, it, was, it sort of cemented for me that like, I knew I could put in the hard work. you know. So, And I think those lessons, whether I made it or not, um, were awesome and have sort of set me up for being able to deal with all of this stuff later on. So... Yeah, I owe a lot to my parents for making me do that stuff. And, um, yeah, and those times, a lot of it wasn't fun, but it was, yeah, I learned a lot from it. So I sort of played basketball through till the end of high school. Um, and then all I wanted to do was move out of home, just get out of home. So I moved down the Gold Coast. There's a theme here. Yeah, yeah I was thinking about it when I was listening to your, your podcast. Eh? So I moved out of home and then surfing became everything. Surfing was the next. I was up every morning out there. I was useless at it, like taking up surfing when you're 18. And I would just get out there and paddle and just like slide on my gut down waves and just do it day after day after day after day. And I remember the first time I stood up, I was like, oh, that's cool. And then you start doing some moves on the on the waves. So that was that was everything for me. That's where I met Beck. 
um, when I was down the coast. And then I... Whereabouts was this, sorry? Broad Beach, Gold Coast. Okay. And had you had much, like, experience with the ocean until you moved there? Uh, look, like we, we'd always do family holidays to, okay. to the Gold Coast. But prior to that, yeah, hadn't had a whole lot to do with the ocean. Lived in Brisbane, so a little bit away from it. Um, so, yeah, it was just that, that exposure of mucking around at the beach as a kid. So, it's terrifying, too, coming in, right? Like, I think you, you've done a bit of surfing, too, but, like, I didn't grow up here either. The ocean's super scary if you don't know what's going on, yeah. and then you're next to people, and they're just taking waves. Like, my husband has surfed his whole life. Yep. So it's all just muscle memory for him, right? And yeah. then everybody else is coming in at these older ages, and it's, yeah. It's ocean awareness as well. I remember when we moved here to Australia, we moved to Bondi, and yeah, like I wouldn't even have known what a rip looked like or any of that really important stuff. Yeah. And then obviously with your fearlessness, you just jump in at 18. <laughs> yeah, and just do it. Just it was, just do yeah, it. yeah. But it was, I guess I'd grown up with the ocean, you know, so I wasn't that scared of it. Not that that was a great thing. Man, if I got caught in a rip and was sucked way out, I, there was no way I could have swum back in. But you know what? You just do dumb stuff when you're you're a kid, hey? So, uh, yeah, I was right into that for a couple of years and then moved back home. I realized I needed to actually earn money. I was sort of working at Foot Locker and, yeah, just I remember, <laughs> I remember one day the surf was so good and I was out there and having a great time and then looked at my watch and it was like midday. I was meant to start work at 9 o'clock. It's the only time I've ever forgotten to ever go to work, just like totally in the moment. And I remember Dad's like, oh, I've just got to stop doing this. I need to actually get a job. So got a job, moved back home, um, back in Brizzy, and did a, yeah, a couple of traineeships. I was a public servant for a while, um, got sick of that. In between that, we got married, um, went, to, went to university, something I'd never wanted to do, partly because I think that was like a rebellious thing, not wanting to go to university, but then realised, oh, I don't want to do Working this, footlocker for that's right. I want to work at footlocker forever. So, <laughs> how old were you when you <clears throat> went to university? Twenty one, twenty two. Which next to the eighteen year olds, everybody's like, "Whoa, yeah. <laughs> I was a mature age student." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> were you the one in the front of the class, like asking all the questions? No, no, I wasn't. But I was that person in the anatomy lecture because I did a uh, human movement studies, so um, like exercise science uh, type degree. And I remember being in that anatomy lecture, and the lecturer said, "Look around, look beside you." Uh, only one out of three people pass this course. So the two people sitting beside you, you know, you've got to decide if it's going to be you that passes it. And I remember then I was like, oh, well, head down, you know, I've got to get into this and, and do that. So, yeah, made my way through university, didn't really know what I was going to do, had a midlife crisis at 25, uh, which sort of coincided with when I finished uni. And, um, yeah, in that last semester of uni, uh, there was a course for doing ECG, so looking at the basically the electrical function of the heart and reading that and uh, started doing that. And then, um, yeah, the university was like, uh, there's some uh, recruitment agencies in the UK that want people that are trained in reading ECGs. Cool, let's move to the UK. So we did, we moved to the UK um, and that was, yeah, awesome. We're only there for about eight months. Beck just missed getting bombed in those, um, you know, the subway, the London bombings. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So it was a bit That's of a like, a, oh, what are we doing over here? And it was just, it was sort of hard. You, you guys know, you know, you've moved to another country and it's just sort of hard work. So we decided to come back home. Uh, before that, I'd actually met another pivotal person in my life, um, or a couple of people, Matt and Simone. They were our next door neighbours. Uh, and they were right into climbing and outdoors and sort of a world that I'd never experienced before. Um, I'd always been interested in it. You know, I love watching those sort of movies of people doing massive trips and climbing big walls and 
all that sort of stuff, you know, it's it's super cool to watch that. And then these were the guys that were doing it. Like they'd work, Matt was a jeweler, he'd work for six months of the year and then he'd duck off over and live at the base of Yosemite. Back uh, when you could like, yeah, live yeah. at the base of Yosemite. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, so he'd do that and just dirtbag climb for six months. And like, so this guy was, I've never really had those sort of sporting idols or those big super famous people that I've looked up to, but there's been people in my life that have been sort of close to me and it's just like, and he was super inspirational. So they were into climbing and I did a bunch of treks and hikes and climbs with those guys. And he was into kayaking as well. So that's what started my love of kayaking and doing some trips there. And, um, yeah, so we did a few trips. Um, yeah. When you say a few trips, is this the friend who you paddled the Bass Strait with? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So for those who aren't <laughs> familiar with Australia, the Bass Strait is... A stretch of ocean between mainland Australia and Tasmania. How far is it? It's a couple hundred kilometres. And it's a pretty gnarly stretch of ocean as well yeah, to an, take yeah. yourself across in a little kayak. Yeah, it's an amazing stretch of ocean. You can imagine you've got the whole southern ocean pushing into this little gap between mainland Australia and Tasmania. And on the eastern side of the Bass Strait, uh, there's a bunch of islands or different island groups. So you can actually island hop. It's not like you have to spend a night in your boat, which would just be horrendous. Like hats off to the, the guys and girls that do that sort of thing, those big ocean rowing you know, expeditions. But yeah, it's it's achievable. Like it's a thing that is achievable, I think by most people with a plan. It's huge. You know, it is huge. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. But it's not beyond, if you can paddle 60 kilometres, if you can sit in a boat and just endure 60 kilometres of paddling. But I it's not just paddling that. either. I mean, you have to navigate. You have oh, to look after yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's not I the trip. Nice. It's like, hey, I just, can go. <laughs> just a warning to our listeners. Don't just jump into a boat and try oh, to paddle, paddle to no. Tassie, please. <laughs> yeah. it, but it's not, it's not unachievable by anyone, I think, with the proper preparation and planning. Do you mean uh, kind of like in the same way that running a 50K after that point, it kind of becomes a bit more mental. Is that kind of that same? And yeah. for me as a runner talk, like you're just saying, just get to 60K in a kayak. And after that, it's more mental and, of course, good planning. Yeah, planning and, yeah, yeah. and being able to deal with big oceans and, you know, those sorts of things and being out there for Weather. a while. Like, that, yeah, there is a there is a big element to it um, that's added on to just the physical component for sure. Um, it's not like, yeah, you can go from paddling over to Stradbroke Island, which is, I don't know. 10 kilometer, 12 kilometer ocean crossing. Yeah, yeah, straight onto to the bass. But, um, but yeah, I think I, I think most things are probably within reach of everyone as long as you're willing to put in the groundwork and the effort beforehand. And how long did that trip take you? That was it. Took us two weeks to get across the bass. I think waiting out weather, and then our next plan was to paddle all the way down the east coast um, of Tasmania, which didn't end up happening for various reasons. Uh, but we modified it and still paddled a chunk of that east coast and finished in Port Arthur, and it was epic. Like probably one, not the best trip I've ever done, but probably the most. Uh, I don't know what the word is. Like it was rewarding, mm-hmm. um, and probably something I'll never do again. Potentially, mm-hmm. you know, that's that large, that's that out there, and that that big. Would you have done it solo or no. was it all about, yeah? Yeah, I, it's interesting. Like when I look back at all of the trips I've done, there's probably about two, only two that I've done that are solo. Yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, interesting. yeah, my very first bikepacking trip um, was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't a disaster. It just didn't end up as planned and uh, it was way harder than I expected and I did it on my own. 
It was when one of those, was that? Oh, this was, I was, I remember I was working at Queensland Health and I remember talking about riding from Brisbane to Sydney. At the time, that seemed massive. Someone was like, oh, it's a thousand kilometres. It'd take you over a week to do. I was like, no, nah, I reckon I can do it in five days. 200 kilometres a day. That's, <laughs> yeah, of course I could do that. So, uh, yeah, I decided I'd try to do that. And um, I bought a thing, this trailer thing called an extra wheel. And I don't know if you've seen bike trailers. Bob made a trailer, but like there's a Bob trailer that's sort of the classic bike trailer, which is a rigid metal frame with a small wheel and it's got a dry bag that sits in the centre of it and you can carry heaps of stuff on it. I didn't like the idea of that. There was this thing called an extra wheel, which is basically the same size wheel as your mountain bike. So you've got a whole spare wheel if you need and you could attach two dry bags to each side of it. So a lot more manoeuvrable, like the videos on the website were sick. This guy's like ripping up single track on it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is the thing for me. Forget that Bob trailer. So I get it. Came from Poland or something. I don't know. It was a, it was a cool bit of kit. But this was my typical planning back. This is my first bikepacking trip ever. And this is a reason why my parents were always concerned about any future trip I did after this because the planning for this was just woeful. Cool. I'm going to go from Brisbane to Sydney. How do I get there? Can't really map anything out. It was before a whole lot of mapping software. Lonely Planet's got a, a book on cycling, hey? So it had basically like these really, really basic maps, but trip notes. So ride 200, 200 metres or whatever and turn right this road and then ride another five kilometres. So I had all these trip notes oh like taped to the top tube of my bike. <laughs> From the Lonely from, Planet, but, too. Yeah, from the Lonely Planet. <laughs> well known. For... And it was also, it was also, I think in the Lonely Planet, it was from Brisbane to Sydney, and I was riding Sydney to Brisbane, so oh I had to read the trip oh, notes no. in reverse. <laughs> so you just put them upside down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that was that. Anyway, I had this, like, extra wheel thing and had these dry bag things on the side, and I'd never ridden with it loaded ever before this trip. So I loaded my bike up, and the thing... Got down to Sydney, took off from Sydney, didn't know, of course, I didn't start from the same spot that the Lonely Planet had said to start from in Sydney, so I didn't even know how to get to the start of it. Riding around Sydney with this trailer loaded that I've never, ever ridden with before. It's horrible. It's all unweighted off to one side. Anyway, it just took forever, and I remember like I did this massive day, and I pulled up, and I was camping, and I was setting up, and someone's trying to talk to me, and I'm just like, oh, I just want to get some food into me. I don't care if you're interested in my trip. I'm hating this trip. <laughs> Let me hate it on my own and get some food into my belly. Anyway, it was this massive day and I woke up the next morning and I went, I stayed at a, like a campsite at a caravan park and I went and had a shower in the morning and I looked in the mirror and my face was just like swollen. Like I was just like full of inflammation, hey, from just punishing myself from that previous day, and this is like day two, oh, this is just going to be so hard. Anyway, the next couple of days sort of picked up. By the end of that trip, I was making my way into Byron Bay, which is probably about, I don't know how many kilometres from Brisbane, so I'd already ridden, say, 800 kilometres, about 200 kilometres from home, and my knee is blowing up. Like, my right knee is just in agony. And here I am, I don't know, I'd be in my mid-twenties and I've done this thing and I'm you know, big-noting myself, yeah, I'm going to ride from Sydney to Brisbane in five days, just watch me, you know, and everyone will be there and they're going to cheer me in. No one cares about what you do, so no one's going to cheer me in. But, <laughs> and this is before social media. Is, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm thinking I'm all that, 
but my knee's blowing up and I'm trying to make it through and I'm going through these massive waves of emotion of like, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it, and then knee just in agony. And I was riding along the highway, bawling my eyes out (laughs) as my knee is hurting and then it would come good. It was like a, it was an inflamed bursae or something in my knee. So it was as the ligament was rubbing over the top of it. And um, I just got to, I think, Ballina and I rang Beck and I said, look, you're just going to have to come and pick me up. Yeah, why? So yeah. you didn't even make it to I didn't, Brizzy? I didn't make it to Brizzy, no. Oh, my God. I what did the cheer Byron. squad do? They, I know. They had to pack up. They took down all the streamers, yeah. all the banners. Like Brisbane Bigger. Brisbane was on high alert, yeah. <laughs> the sign writing was called off, you know. The balloon arch was popped. <laughs> the balloon arch, that's what I was going for. <laughs> Oh man, there's so many things in there I want to come back to you. I do want yep. you to finish your origin story because we got to where you met oh. your neighbours. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I met neighbours anyway. I did a bunch of kayaking trips and everything with those guys. And then we had, uh, I had, I, I keep saying we, Beck didn't have any of these midlife crises. She lived through these midlife crises with me. And collected you from... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we sort of had unfinished business in the UK as well. So we'd come back early. Uh, we we're trying to decide what we we're going to do. Did the bass straight was not going to get time off work to do that so just quit cool we might as well just don't have jobs we'll go to the uk middle of the global financial crisis we did this big uh you know bass straight trip get to the uk uh i'd already changed jobs moving away from being a cardiac scientist which is what i had done for a while and uh yeah i get to the uk and just we had to get work so i went back to being a cardiac scientist which was probably the best thing I could have done because that's where I met another crew of really, really cool people. Um, and, yeah, so guys like Ed and Joel and guys that I've done loads of trips with ever since, you know, it was who I was working with. So that was awesome from that respect, a job that I sort of didn't really like, but, you know, came across these amazing people and we did some more amazing trips and they were mainly based on bikes throughout Europe and things like that. I did send Kristen a photo of you all dressed as reindeer with your bikes. Yeah, we did some dumb trips too. Uh, <laughs> it was very cute. Yes, there was the uh, the Christmas trip uh, from uh, London to Bath for the Christmas markets. We did a couple of trips to the Christmas markets. One was from London to Cologne, which was, again, another epic disaster. I've had so many epic fails. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Epic fails was like an yeah, even a thing. thing too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we did heaps of bike bike packing trips, well, and more flash packing, I guess, is what's called now. You know, where we ride with a credit card and a passport, which we call the passport rides. So you leave from London and go get on a ferry and get into Europe and go do some cool stuff. Um, yeah, and that was like yeah, the London was cool. Like, and again, it comes back to I had this cool group of people that I shared all these adventures with. Um, we moved back home. And I've still done a few of those sort of adventures again with the same crew that I was with in London. So were they all Aussies, or have they come out here? Or? They were all Aussies, and then I also had another really cool crew of people when I left the hospital system over there, and I worked for a private company. And that's where our team there, like Carl, Ben, Kat, Tanya, we all sort of uh, we all got into the whole plant based sort of change of. We all read Born to Run. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So Born to Run, yeah, yeah, and that sort of changed everything. And we're all on the same path, and we're all trying different things. And I was starting to do some ultra runs and stuff there, and 
was training for the, the Transcontinental Race, which is a solo, unsupported bikepacking race from London to Istanbul. Well, that was the very first iteration of it. I like how casually you say that. It's just, you know, yeah, this little race. Far how out. far is that? Uh, well, you could route, choose your own route, yeah. yeah, but it was around about 3,000. Over 3,000 kilometres, yep. Any sort of time limit that they put on it or...? There was a sort of time limit because they wanted everyone to get to the end to be able to celebrate together because there were no prizes, all this ultra stuff. There's no prize. It's just the, you know, the community, I guess, side of it there. So they wanted everyone to be in Istanbul for the final sort of get-together, you know, where everyone patted each other on the back and listened to the cool stories that they had uh, on their trip because it was a unique event in the fact that it was... Checkpoint to checkpoint. You rode from London to Istanbul and there were two checkpoints in the middle. Apart from that, the route was entirely up to you. So you had to plan 3,000 kilometres worth of riding. And you could stay in any kind of hotels. You could stay in any brothels you chose to (laughs) uh, in any country you wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) Hence the Serbian brothel uh, experience, yep. Okay, so that was that trip. (laughs) That was transcontinental. And also, we haven't mentioned you placed third in that particular race. Yep. And you've talked about how your strategy really changed or your outlook changed yeah, during yep. that event. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I was, that was, uh, it was pretty much we decided to move back home. Uh, Beck and I decided to move. We're going to leave London, move back to Australia. So this was like my swan song big trip. You know, this is the last time I was going to get to ride or do something big through Europe. It's going to be epic. I'm going to be part of this bikepacking event and I'm going to be the hard man. You know, I'm going to go ride this extra loop after you had to ride up, one of the checkpoints was the Paso del Estelvio, which is a huge climb. It's like this iconic cycling climb, just beautiful. There's a glacier there and you've got all these hairpins and it's just like spectacular in Italy. Um, and after that, I was going to go ride some other mountains that were out, out the back of that. But I get to the top of it and like it was, I was in fourth position. And the guy that was coming third was only just in front of me. I'd ridden with him the night before. And I remember sitting there with Mike Hall, who was the um, director of the race, the creator of the race, who was now no longer with us. He was um, killed in a bikepacking race here in Australia, actually. And um, he was like, oh, man, you're, you're sitting in fourth. Like, Ed was the guy that was coming third. He goes, he's just in front of you. And um, I was like, yeah, but I want to do this route through, um, you know, Italy and that. And now that I think about it, that was... I guess that was the time I thought, well, it was almost back to that basketball, you know. I can not take the shot and go do that and hide behind the fact that I want to do this route or I can take the shot and see if I can come third. So then it was on. Yep, then it was a race. For me, it was a race. The thing changed. um, And that was a solo, one of my solo, one of those solo trips Mm. I was telling you about, and absolutely horrific. (laughs) I was waiting for this, like, yeah, yeah. momentous <laughs> no. finish. <laughs> like, there are not a whole lot of things I can remember from it. There are days that I can remember that were massive, like that day that I rode through Bulgaria. I think it was about 475 Ks, like the longest day I've ever had on a bike and just big kilometres. But, like, not a whole lot of fun involved in that. You know, it then became about this sense of achievement of trying to get that place. Um, and getting it done, the whole trip for me, I just remember, was just a massive exercise in maths about getting the ride done. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And how many days did it take you in the end? Ten, uh, nine, nine days and 13 hours or something like that. And is that the longest multi-day adventure you've done? No, Bass. Bass would be the oh, longest. Of yeah, yeah. Sarah. Yep. Yeah, maths. But, but in terms of going hard, mm. yeah, the whole time, that one, for sure. So that was a intention of like, I'm going to go hard 
and yeah. try and get to the end as that's it yeah yeah i was yeah. yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go for third yeah i can yeah i can smell a podium here and then went for it but it was hard like it was properly hard remember my dad uh, messaging me out on that and saying, oh, by the calculations, because you can watch these races because um, you carry a spot tracker. So on the website, uh, on the spot website, you can actually see where everyone's riding and it's sort of cool and it tells you how many kilometres you've done a day and when you stop for the night, it puts a little tent up on the on the thing and it, it sort of became something that my parents could actually be involved in then and Beck could be involved in and friends could watch it and see how you're going and they can see how fast you're riding too. Like it'll give you going at 35k an hour or whatever it might be and i remember my dad saying oh it's going to you're going to be riding till tuesday at this rate and i remember thinking there is no way i am riding my bike for another three days i'm getting this done (laughs) i just had to get it done yeah had to get it done amazing and i think interestingly just hearing you talk about your family being involved Mm -hmm. and back um, as our theme here is like the everyday adventurer Mm -hmm. and a lot of Time is required, commitment, mm-hmm. when you're preparing for these type of mm-hmm. things. How have you found balancing all, all of that? Yeah, I've been really bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> like Bass Strait, classic example, it almost led to divorce. Um, wow. Because, yeah, I was just so selfishly single-minded um, about preparing for that trip. And even, like... For Beck, that was like obviously really bad, but also for Matt, the guy I did it with, I, I actually had written on my boat in Nico or in permanent marker on the front of my hatch there, it's not all about you. Because in doing some preparation trips, I'd just done some dumb stuff. Like, you know, just stupid things. We went out, <laughs> we prepared for um, like paddling in big seas, like the Bass Strait, you have the potential for massive, massive swells. So a cyclone was hitting the, the coast and we went down to the Gold Coast and we paddled out through the seaway and it's big like proper big sitting in your boat and you've got the the nerves going through you know your legs almost like that sewing machine leg you know you get the jitters jitters, like and it's just like adrenaline coursing through you and we're out the back and we didn't have any sort of communication method didn't have walkie-talkies or anything we just paddled out for the day for the morning to deal with this ocean i remember looking at it and i'm like i'm just going to go surf one of these waves in and matt was like don't do it man i was like yeah I'm going to go do this. Like, again, full ego, just stupid. And I paddled in, made it in, no dramas, but I could not get back out. Meanwhile, Matt's sitting out the back. He can't see me. It's this massive cyclonic swell. He's not knowing what's going on. And I'm trying to get out. And I finally got back out. And as I'm paddling out, he's paddling in. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I just did some dumb stuff that just wasn't, wasn't smart at all. So but off of that too, I'm sure you're like, people probably ask you all the time, like, why do you do stuff? What is your why? I'm sure it's changed over the years. And we're still in the origin yeah. story, but now we're starting yeah. to ask yeah. questions no. in there too. It's, um, <laughs> it's something I ask myself all the time, like yeah. why I actually do these things. And it's interesting, like, I love getting outdoors and being outdoors and being in amazing places, but the main driver has always been the physical challenge, always. And I'm obviously trying to prove something to myself or to someone. I don't know who it is uh, yet. I still haven't worked that out. But, um, yeah, it's it's mainly that physical challenge. That's why I do it. You know, the thought of, is something possible? Well, let's see if it is. And the fact that they tend to be in cool locations is also... Also helps. That's a massive yes. bonus. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> I think we stopped at transcontinental. Oh, so I think pause. No, because like, I was like, where did we get to? And the artist are, no, yeah. I think Matt said, and now I'm here. Like, yeah. what are you? What is here? What are you doing? Yeah. Now? So yeah. So uh, yeah, came back, came back home, and this is our like the continuing. It's no longer a midlife crisis. It's a midlife awakening. I think now. Um, and yeah, it was sort of stuck in the doldrums. You moved back. Everything's sort of exciting and new. Even though we'd lived in the UK for five years, it's buzzing. You know, London's buzzing and surrounded by these people that would just do stuff. You live life differently. I don't know what you guys think about that when you're overseas, but you tend to live life like uh, there's not uh, you're not stuck there for the future almost. So you you sort of have I have a different perspective on it. You know, I didn't have to stay in the UK forever. I had this blue passport that allowed me to go home. So. I don't have to worry about pensions and supers and I'm just going to go travel and, you know, do all that sort of stuff. So we came back, bought a house, didn't know what to do with our lives, went back to doing a job I swore I'd never do. Uh, And, um, yeah, it was just sort of like that weird, almost treading water Mm -hmm. uh, type type thing. Still did a couple of cool trips. So ended up riding from Brisbane to Sydney again and made it. Did that actually do it? Without the trailer (laughs) and with two mates. So, yeah, didn't do it solo. Yep, did it with some friends. Was the finishing arc there for you? Did uh, they have that from the first attempt? Better believe it, yeah. <laughs> the balloons were flying. We had to ship it all down to Sydney, though, because we went from Brisbane to Sydney. Uh, so, yeah, did that. And then, yeah, right, Adelaide to Brisbane. And um, Melbourne to Sydney was the last sort of thing that we did here in Australia, but also did another bikepacking trip in New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, done a few sort of things like that. And then, yeah, Got jack of, totally jack of what I was doing. I was on a path of self-destruction, really, in that job. Just hated it. But I hated it. It wasn't a bad job. It was a toxic environment for me um, just because, um, yeah, I wasn't surrounded by people that were on the same path that I wanted to be on. So finally, again, decided to take that shot, the basketball thing, you know. Didn't want to just do the -the run-of-the-mill thing, so... Um, a mate and I, we decided we we're going to start doing mountain bike trips to Japan. I don't know why Japan, but uh, yeah, we did a couple of trips to Japan, sussed out a whole bunch of stuff, um, started doing that, COVID hit. Um, I was also doing some mountain bike coaching at the time and then sort of, yeah, here I am now, mountain bike coaching. Mountain bike coaching Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I am right in saying that both you guys are going to be doing the Hurt. The Hurt 1000. 1000. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's the next big exciting trip. Yeah, yeah, the Hurt the Hurt 1000. I'm hoping you've matured since your paddling days and you're not just going to oh. ditch us. <laughs> are you, are you going to write, it's not lot. all about me? It's not me. all about me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> On your handlebars. Yeah. <laughs> Alongside the classic shut up legs and whatever <laughs> yeah, else you right. see on people's handlebars on Instagram. But yeah, so... Yeah, the way I approach those sort of trips has changed massively now, like absolutely massively. In what sense? Uh, I don't know whether it's maturity. I don't know whether it – because I don't think I'm mature. I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. But um, I think there's less of a need to prove something to myself or to anyone else. So a trip can adjust and change. And it's about the trip. And like I was saying, I've done those a couple of solo things and they sort of weren't fun. All the best trips, the best memories I've had are never really about a location. They're always about like the shared experience that I had with the other people on the trip. Yeah, interesting. And something I definitely need to think about whenever I... I'm looking at Matt because I'm always like, hey, I'm going to do this trip. And I think Matt's question to me is always, 
would you do this if you couldn't tell anyone about it? And I feel like that really brings home, like, why am I doing this? And I think for me, location is often actually at the forefront of my mind mm-hmm. because, like, I love being out in nature. I want to see new places. Mm-hmm. And I keep planning these solo things. Um, but I'm super excited to go on a shared adventure for sure because there's no doubt sharing stories of heart which will be inevitable (laughs) and just to remind people it's hunt 1000 that's coming from Kristen. (laughs) (laughs) but we're going to be using that i'm pretty sure yeah but yeah i think um definitely a different perspective whether you're going solo or shared yeah there are benefits to both for sure like if it is about physical challenge solo can be way better because you can push at your own rate like you guys know what it'd be like what what it's like trying to run with someone that's not the same doesn't run the same pace as you it feels horrible i reckon it ends up you end up with injury and all sorts of things because you've got to change your gait and your running style and all those sorts of things so well i'd say it only feels horrible if you haven't agreed at the start what your intention is yeah because i'm happy to run with a slower or faster person if we're on the same page that this is how we're going to approach it Sorry yeah, to oh, that's right. No, that's a fair point. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's that team dynamic, right? Yep. You kind of have to go into it. Like, what yes. are our intentions yep. here? Because yep. you can, I'm sure, have a whole bunch of different goals by the end of it. You can just, literally, your goal can just be to do it, and it doesn't matter how long it takes you. Yep. Whereas you might go like, all right, well, let's try and go for this. And if that's not shared, then I'm sure it's going to explode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. We have some big conversations to have, that's for sure. Matt is a very strong rider compared to me, um, so you're definitely going to be changing your gait. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's also an element of, like, you can still ride up something at your own pace and then meet and regroup and, and things like that as well. And that's, the, I guess, the advantage of having someone to do an adventure with because you know how your energy ebbs and flows on these things. You have the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. One minute you're going to make it, the next minute you're crying. Tears, you know, streaming out your eyes on the Pacific Highway in the Byron <laughs> Bay, you know. It just. Uh, but if you've got someone to share that with, because often like you'll be like just punching away and your, your mate's just struggling, but they're getting pulled along by you and you know that's going to be reciprocated and changed uh, up at some other point. And that's the, the beauty of those, but it's also the frustration. Like if you want to go and push, you've got to be mindful that you can't can't do that if you if your other expedition partners or adventure partners are struggling. Yeah, we talked about that in our podcast with Crystal, the different types of fun, and I think Crystal and I had only heard of like type one to three, but she added in other others which are I'm having fun and no one else is, mm-hmm. or vice versa. Yeah. And I think it's such an important point when it comes to a shared adventure. Yeah. You're unlikely to always be, well, you're never going to always be on the same page. And to have someone else to pull you along, it makes a huge difference, that's for sure. Yeah, yep. Yeah, and that's and that also pushes you to points that you couldn't get to on your own as well. You know, if you've got someone that's just dragging you through it. We did this trip, we rode... It was to make up for a failed trip. We rode from uh, London to Cologne. So our original trip was London to Cologne, and we're going to do it to as an excuse to go to the Christmas markets. Well, it was an excuse to do the trip, and it was around Christmas markets. So it was from the Hyde Park Christmas markets to the Cologne Christmas markets. The reason we chose Cologne is because we could actually get the uh, what's the train, the train back across the Channel because the Eurostar. That's it. The Eurostar went from London to Cologne. It's like sweet. We're going to do this first it was the first weekend in december that we planned to do this and this is like where most of my failed trips have come from like you know you're in the uk or you're somewhere and you've got a finite amount of time so you pick 
a weekend and everyone plans everything around that weekend. And of course, the weather in the UK and Europe can be horrendous. December, especially well. December. I mean, come on, you got to go around the market. <laughs> so it's the it's the coldest weekend ever, or in living history, or whatever they they'd call it in um, uh, in London. There's snow. It's snowing in London. We're there. We're getting all pumped, like because we're leaving on a Friday afternoon. We've got the passports in the pocket. This is going to be sick. And I remember I didn't have any really warm gear, but I still had my kayaking gear. So I had like a like a CAG. I was wearing a CAG <laughs> to do this trip, which if you don't know what a CAG is, it's like a... It's a very sexy piece of gear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like got a tight neck and tight sleeves so water doesn't really oh. get in. And it's just like doesn't breathe. It's a, it's a proper kayaking bit of kit. Yeah. You know, it's super specific and it's no good for exercising in no, I was just going to say that you had a sweat <laughs> oh, that would cool yeah. in there just like, like yeah. restricted feeling around your wrist yeah. and your neck as well yeah and Ooh. all the locals are going you're not going to make it this is just stupid and we're just like we're from Australia we've got this we've got this covered I remember one of the boys he had a set of ski goggles that he was wearing <laughs> to ride <laughs> I'm just building a picture but, yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. So there's three of us full of bravado and, yeah, we're just going to crush this. We go straight to the Hyde Park markets and get stuck into the mulled wine, which is the perfect start for a trip like this. Anyway, we're riding through southeast England and there's just snow drifts everywhere. We're falling off in front of cars. It's just You're diabolical. We're on road bikes, right? We're on road bikes, yeah. yeah. We're trying to make it to Dover for the ferry and it was just never going to happen. Our camelback, uh, the hoses are all frozen. You can't drink any water. It's just properly horrendous. Actually, it was like Dumb and Dumber, you know, when they've got icicles out their nose. But we had, like, icicles hanging off our beards. And it was just, yeah, it was just stupid. We stayed in a hotel. We had to, yeah. So we didn't even make the ferry that night. And we had to ride to, I don't know, Dover the next day. And I remember we're still soaking wet. I've got my cag. I'm just dripping with sweat and water. And one of the boys used the toilet the entire time on the um, on the ferry crossing. Just like, under the hairdryer, drying all these clothes. There's this massive lineup. Well, where's Paul? And there's this massive lineup of people waiting to get into the guy's toilets. And he's just <laughs> drying all these clothes. So he's right. He's set. Ed's trying not to throw up because he gets seasickness. I'm just feeding him packets of crisps. And well, oh, you guys doing? were a well, great team. <laughs> crisps and water. Like what? What else are you going to give someone? That's gonna... <laughs> Adventure tip, everyone. <laughs> but we're soaking wet, so we get to Dunkirk or wherever the thing landed. I can't remember. Pretty sure it's not. It's not Dunkirk. That's another ferry. But um, you're insulting the locals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we get it's in France anyway. We get there. Paul is dry. He's ready to ride. Ed and I aren't. So we go to a laundromat. We go into the laundromat and we realise with our amazing packing that we just basically bought one pair of gear to uh, actually use for the entire ride because we're meeting Beck and uh, Nov, another one of the guys' wives, in Cologne, and they had the rest of our gear, so all we had was our riding gear. Okay, we've got to get dry, so we got to nude up in this laundromat, and it's got a massive like picture window out to the street, but there was a table in there, so we tip the table up sideways, and we quickly like, chuck our stuff in the dryer. A family comes in. It was like, oh, this is just like horrible. Anyway... We get there and it's like, oh, I don't think we really want to ride anymore. So we stayed the night and we're like, man, we've got to get to Cologne. We've got to get to Cologne. We've got to meet the girls there. And um, our plan was then to buy a car. So I was like, the road, like, we're not going to make it in time. We've got to, we've got to buy a car. Ed could sort of half speak French. He couldn't actually. He couldn't speak French at all. But he was the best French speaker out of all of us. 
and he's trying to like say, I want to buy a car. And people thought we're trying to steal a car. So that idea went out the window. Anyway, we rode into Belgium. We got a, um, a train partway in towards Germany. Snow everywhere still. Uh, we had to get a rail replacement bus and we got three bikes and we get off this train and it's like massive snow drift again on the platform. We're pushing through it. Not, not knowing what's happening. Then we're piling on a bus. We've got these three bikes. We're jammed up into the like the well in the, the side of the bus. And anyway, we eventually get to Cologne. That was the failed trip. So we had to do a, a like a trip to actually make it, and we did it in summer. One of the guys, as we were riding out there, Ed, again, loved his Garmin, like just loved staring at his Garmin. We're on the highway, and we're like punching out a big pace line. There's seven of us, and we're just going for it to hit the ferry. And Ed's tapping away on his Garmin there. Next minute, he does something, um, like gets offline. Everyone runs into the back of him. One of the guy comes off and uh, just like tears his knee up on that bitumen, like properly tears it up. It swells up to twice the size. Um, and the next day, he's like, I don't think I'm going to make it. Like we got on the ferry and he's just, I don't think I can do it. And he wouldn't have done it if it was on his own. This is the long story finally getting there he wouldn't have done it on his own um but because we're all there he actually rode 200 k's that day on that blown up knee it was full of beer and panadol but he still made it like to get to the next point so yeah it's pretty cool what you can do and what you can get through when you got the support is part of that like ego driven as well though too of like if you set out or when you were setting out to to do something um how much did ego play a role in like oh, well, I've told everybody I'm going to do it, so I have to do 100%. it. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that does for all of us. And, mm. uh, and that's that's part of the cool thing of saying, putting it out there that you're going to do a trip um, because if you don't do that, sometimes maybe you never will do it. You know, you get to a point where it's just like, oh, I don't really want to do it. If you haven't told anyone, it's pretty easy, isn't it? You just don't do it. But when you put it out there, yeah, there is an element of that. And that can be good, but it can also be really, really bad, like really bad. Like if you push through something like that, it could end up being injured for six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks after. But, yeah, but you can also, yeah, push through some stuff. Beer and panic. Uh, that's what I was thinking, like, that's <laughs> no, pushing through yeah, something. Yeah, we si- I remember sitting in Bruges. It was such a nice day, too. And we're just sitting there, and, like, Tom's got his knee, and he's like, no, I'm just going to get the train. And it was just, oh, I have a, have a couple of Panadols. We're having like Belgian beers, which is super strong, so strong sitting so in the good. sun. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, this is the best day ever. And he's like, yeah, I'm just going to ride it. <laughs> a couple of uh, Shimei's, Shimei, Bl- Shimei Blue. Ooh. Yeah, that's the brand, I think. Because, mm. yeah, when we were traveling here, we went to Belgium. And they're like, you'll remember this one because it's Shimei Blow. <laughs> so, anyways, remember Shimei as the uh, brand name. That's and then classic. The blue. And they've always got, like, such nice glasses, oh, too. Yeah, you know, beautiful, they? love they? their craft beer there, yeah. So and it's... Nice. Sarah, of course, as a non-beer drinker, wouldn't be. Uh... <laughs> no, yeah. but I can appreciate it. Yeah. 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 I actually worked at a trade show in Belgium. When of course I was you did. The distillery oh, so and came home with a suitcase full of beer. So oh. yeah, who'd you give it to? Side note: um, anyone who came to my house <laughs> <laughs> for the next ten years. For, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the labels are like peeling off. But hey. <laughs> so with all of your failed adventures, how yep. are you guys both now planning for Hunt One Thousand together? Good question. <laughs> Should we be asking in a couple months? or Because <laughs> when does it happen again? Um, also a good question. End of November, December type time. Well, you see, because it's 
it's like a sort of unofficial event, right? Mm -hmm. So this guy, Dan Hunt, who is the root setter, typically announces the date, um, but it hasn't been announced yet. We will, however, ride it regardless, is the mm -hmm. plan, assuming Matt doesn't have other plans. Um, so, yeah. No, I'm interested to hear how your preparation is going to look different to previous, which you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I've done some trips. So Bass Strait was probably the very first trip that I properly trained for in some respects. Matt, who I did it with, another Matt, um, he was never in for training or going to the gym or anything. So our training was all around prep trips. You know, you do a, a two-day trip around Morton or something like that, Morton Island. You just do trips that gradually built and built and built um, so that you could deal with multiple weeks out there. Um, something like Transcontinental was something that I took pretty seriously. I was doing some ultra running at the time too because I really wanted to qualify for Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, mm. which you've got to get points for. You do indeed. Yeah. Back in the old yeah. system. Well, yeah. yes. new it's one is controversial. Oh, man. Yeah. What are you going to do now? Uh, uh, UTMB and Ironman yeah. have joined forces. Uh, okay. So UTMB now is essentially kind of like the Kona of got ultra you. running. And so it's very... I listened to a really in-depth podcast on it the other day and I'm like right in the middle. Like if it's yeah. a good, there's a lot of cool aspects to it, but yeah. of course it's like how, um, how commercialized does it make everything? Gotcha. But yeah. anyways, Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc is an amazing event regardless. So did you get to do that? No, I didn't yeah, end up okay. doing it. No, we came home, but, um, so yeah, I was doing a bunch of training and a bunch of that. That was my first real introduction, even though I did a sports science degree, it was my first, I guess, personal experimentation with doing long slow distance stuff you know so that metabolic training where you just have to put your ego aside and yeah just put in the time and do it long and slow and um that was the sort of background for that no I, I did a bunch of rides I remember doing one ride getting up one morning just fasted you know from the night before and took nothing with me so no credit card no water no food no, anything and did this ride out of London called, um, there's a loop called Legs of Steel. It was pretty cool, like amazing, super spectacular scenery and some really tough climbs, like some 20% gradients, which is pretty hard on a, on a pushy. And um, yeah, I did that, rode that, sort of no dramas because I'd done all this, you know, really long, slow distance training and I could go and just push for hours on end, you know, using the diesel engine, I guess, if you want to call it that. So I was fairly confident going into that. Um, but all of those are a long time ago now and the older I get, <laughs> the more I realize that you can't, uh, get away with a lot of things that I could have, uh, when I was younger. So, um, yeah, as well as I'm fortunate that I've got that background, like the mental, the psychological, I guess, ability of pushing through and knowing I can be out there for 10 days. That's, that's not a problem. I know it's still going to be hard, but it's not, you know, it's not a, a massive concern. Um, but being able to sit on a bike over like rough terrain for 10 hours plus a day for 10 days in a row is that's what's really hard and getting off and pushing your bike. There's a lot of hiker bike mm -hmm. sections there. So if you don't have that sort of core pillar strength, that, that's going to be, yeah, epic setup for failure for me anyway. Um, and then, yeah, the physiological side of it, of course, you know, you've got to do some long, slow rides and a couple of big rides to get you in that 
that mental headspace as well, just to know that you can sit on a bike for six hours or 10 hours or whatever the case might be. So with your coaching as well, are you doing that kind of coaching, like for the long endurance stuff, or are you doing... Not like- really. Like, yeah, most of our uh, the riders that we deal with are like gravity enduro or in gravity athletes. Um, and can you and so, explain that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yep. So mountain bike has got a whole bunch of different disciplines. Um, there's the traditional sort of mountain biking was always cross country. So going riding around in a loop or a long distance, uh, a ride of an hour or two hours long. Um, and now as bikes, there was always downhill racing as well. Um, but as bikes have evolved, like they're pretty cool now. Bikes are pretty amazing. Like the suspension and the brakes and all of that. It's opened up a whole new um, genre of riding, I guess. And enduro riding is pretty much the way we all like, well, you ride with your friends sort of cruise up the hills and you ride fast down the hills and have fun. So uh, that's been a big shift in the, the way mountain biking is actually run now. So that's a gravity, I guess, discipline. So um, And you're just time for the descent. And you're just time for the descent, yep. So it's almost like a rally, you know, like a car rally where you might have five hours of the day to get the five stages done. You've got liaison stages that aren't timed um, and then you've got, which are generally climbing up the hill, and then you've got the timed segments which are generally downhills um so yeah that's the majority of our athletes so it's highly skill based um that you're dealing with there you can get away with a lot even if you aren't fit and you've got great skills you can get away with a lot um but there's also a big element of being fit in that you're still out on the bike for five hours or four hours so yeah but yeah the ultra endurance side of it no we don't really Except for except for except Sarah, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So I guess yeah. There's, there's the physiological, the mental, and then of course the the ability to sit in that position for hours on end. Yeah. With Hunt, there's also the adventure aspect in terms of looking after yourself in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. So I guess you already have that box pretty well ticked as well. Would you say? Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, all of the like expedition type stuff you've done is all going to contribute to that. But it's something that's like it's all very well being able to ride your bike for hunt, but you're really going to need to be able to maintain yes. your body. Yeah, there's an element of navigation. Navigation's a lot easier now, though, um, especially with electronic you don't devices. Use the planet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and tape it to your top tube. <laughs> Turn left at the next mountain. <laughs> But you, you just follow that purple line or pink line on your on your screen, you know. It's a, it's a hell of a lot easier than, um, yeah, trying to nav off a map and a compass and all those sort of things. But, yeah, I think they're still sort of important to be able to do that. Um, yeah, do you like the fact that there now is, like, a lot more accessibility for all of that because you don't have to use the little pointer <laughs> anymore? Like, has that changed how you adventure as well? Like, that's just oh, an interesting little yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, I think... Side. It's pretty cool when you think about Google Maps or Google Earth is such an amazing resource for free. I mean, that's insane. You can get, you can, that's how we, you know, found a lot of the, the stuff we were riding in Japan. You get onto Google Earth and you could have a look. Oh, that looks like a bit, bit of a trail. And if someone's taken a photo, you know, there'll be a little green dot and you can click on that and then you get this view of, oh, yeah, it looks like a walking trail in there or some sort of trail. So, yeah, the mapping software that's available and all for free is pretty insane so you can start to put routes together now that i think just would have taken years to go out and ride and explore and and do all that sort of stuff so um but you've also got to be careful with that that software as well we used to thing a lot of the well i used to do most of the route planning that's the cool thing about an adventure too i reckon you need someone with the idea and someone to make it happen sometimes that can be the same person but a lot of the time it's not and uh i'd often be the person that would 
make that happen or help make that happen. So I'd be doing a lot of the route planning. We use this, uh, I use this website called Bike Route Toaster. It doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. I looked it up the other day, but it would toast you all the time. I remember like hiking our bikes through Belgian sand dunes because it had routed us through there. So you've got to be a little bit careful with that sort of stuff, but that's where Google Earth and all that, again, is is really good. You can zoom in, you can see whether it is an actual road or a lot of the time. But, I don't, yeah, you've still got to get out there and try it, don't you? Do you think that increased accessibility, e.g. I could just stick a route on my Garmin mm-hmm. and head off and follow mm-hmm. it as opposed to actually having to know how to use a compass and like a topo map. Mm-hmm. Do you think there is increased risk in there as well with mm-hmm. people going yeah. out? Of course, yeah, yeah. Because if you're if you haven't built the redundancy into your trip plan, so you can you can do that by having multiple devices and at least then you've got a backup that can still do the same thing. But if all those run out, I guess the thing is yeah, you can know how to use a map and a compass, but if you haven't brought a map and a compass it's still not gonna help. <laughs> and I don't know how many people actually take a map and a compass. It's been a long time since I've navigated yeah. with a compass. I'd need a refresher, that's yeah, for sure. But yeah, I yeah. used two in Scotland, definitely. Mm. But yeah, interesting. It's been a long time when I think yeah. about it. So I think there's that element now of yeah, you build in the redundancy. But that's also the cool thing about that mapping software. Hey? You can like still look at your phone if you have mobile reception or you've downloaded maps and you can still find an escape route. And I guess Yeah. For that reason, I think, yeah, it it may get people out and doing things that maybe they shouldn't be doing, but it also gives you the ability to reroute to get out, potentially, you know, to use that technology as well. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And just in terms of apps and stuff, I use maps.me, so that works without phone signal. Yeah. And then map out, I think I was showing you the other day as well, is like you can just literally draw with your finger on the go and create a new route, which is pretty cool too. because Garmin can be hit and miss. It can be, for sure. Not anything against Garmin, but... um, (laughs) I've or your mate who had the yeah, <laughs> who had the knee blowout because of his Carmen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Great tool, but also very distracting. Carmen <laughs> <laughs> yeah, failed him that yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, I think that's I think those nav navigation aids are s- super useful. And just to clarify as well, Hunt One Thousand is a route that you do follow. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. Just making sure that you didn't have to route. Yeah, that it is. But there's elements of also having to get yourself out. Like if something bad mm. does happen, I mean, you're out in the wilderness. You've still got to be able to get yourself out. And the fact that you know, one year there were blizzards and then there were fires, so you've got to be able to change where you're going on the fly as well. So yeah, there was someone who I don't know if they were like medevaced or what happened, but they were pulled off the course one year because they were stuck in I think blizzard conditions. And it turned out he actually called for help and he was like 100 metres from a hut, but he just had no awareness of the route. So there's definitely preparation in terms of knowing what's coming as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Cool. How are we doing for time? We're about just over an hour, hour and five minutes. Nice. Um, I reckon with that, is there anything else you would like to ask, Kristen? Just our final question, our final Sarah. Question. Yeah. <laughs> so, Matt, I coach for you these little girls on a Thursday afternoon who, <laughs> yes. who can't make it through the hour without having to go for a wild wee mm-hmm. in the bushes. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your wildest wee. Oh, look, I, I've done a lot of wild wees. <laughs> I do have a memorable wild poo. Oh, <laughs> 
next level. <laughs> Always pushing that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, tell, tell us. It was us on uh, Conical Island, which is a little island at the top of the Keppel Group um, out from Yapoon. And it's pretty cool. Like If you ever get to go there, you can book the entire island. I think there's only five camping spots on it, or there used to be. So you just book out the whole island. You've got it to yourself. But we were, Beck and I were kayaking. We linked up the sort of the Keppel group there. And um, I was yeah doing my morning constitutional, and there was this massive clapping. I was like, whoa, what's going on here? Like, it's not that good. But it was a whale, like literally like five meters off the like the the uh island there slapping its tail that was my most memorable that's that's pretty Ooh, impressive well <laughs> <laughs> that's epic that's awesome. you had an audience <laughs> this isn't that good yeah that's right <laughs> So thank you so much for your time today. If people want to look you up, where can they find you online? With well, your expansive online presence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Did you find anything? <laughs> no. I think if I went like four or five <laughs> pictures in, I was in 2019. <laughs> yeah, I don't really put that much up on social media. But, um, Neither does no. Sarah, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Matt gives me no end of shit about how many stories I've I know, story. I finally get someone to give you shit about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. Your business. Yeah, yeah. At MTB Coaching Oz is uh, yeah, where you find some really cool mountain bike coaching stuff. Awesome. It's that is updated more regularly than 2019. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fun talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, yep. thank you no so dramas. much. Thanks for your having time. me. It's been awesome. Thanks for listening to another episode of Into the Wee Hours podcast. To get in touch, you can find us on Instagram at Into the Wee Hours podcast or email us at Into the Wee Hours podcast at gmail.com. Sarah is all the gear, nay idea, and that is N A E for all you non Scots people. And Kristen is at Kristen Vaughton on Instagram. To read the show notes or to find out more about fast packing and bike packing workshops, visit intothewehours.com or follow at intothewehours on Instagram and Facebook. Happy adventuring and we'll talk to you next time.